Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I am rejoined and happy to say by my co-host, I captured him out front and <laughs> brought him in, political analyst Garland Nixon. Welcome back, man. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Sputnik International has a piece entitled How Zelensky is Losing His Halo May Soon Outlive His Usefulness for West. Western mainstream press previously lauded Ukrainian President Zelensky as a guardian of democracy. However, as ex-Donald Trump advisor Steve Kortz or Cortez observes in his Newsweek op-ed, its tone is changing. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our first guest. He's an American citizen living in Ukraine, Regis Tremblay. Regis, as always, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Wilmer and Garland. Well, uh, everybody here that I know think that thinks that Zelensky is on a very short rope. Um, people here are aware that the mainstream media in the United States and Europe are changing the narrative. Seemingly, people are questioning uh, his ability to conduct this war. Uh, people are questioning an article uh, that was written that only 30% of the money and weapons coming from U.S. and Europe are getting to the troops in Ukraine. Um, and there are stories indicating that there's discussion going on in the White House of how to get rid of Zelensky. Um, and the reason for this seems to be a way for America to save face. They got to blame the disaster, uh, this total capitulation of the Ukrainian army on somebody, and it looks like it's going to be Zelensky. Let me ask you this. You know, we've heard about what's happened in Crimea. There was discussion about, you know, the explosions, and we've heard recently there was sabotage involved. What do you know about that, and what kind of reactions are there from the people in Crimea? Well, uh, people here obviously are concerned. Uh, some of my friends who have lived here all their lives uh, obviously were in favor of Crimea returning, returning, I have to emphasize, to Russia in 2014, where it had been since the time of Catherine the Great. People here have been talking about a minority of people in Crimea who were not in favor of returning to Ukraine in 2014. And some believe that these people are the ones taking part in these acts of sabotage. And it's been confirmed by the Russian military of defense that it is sabotage. On the other hand, it's been reported that there are Ukrainian special ops trained by the West, probably the United States, uh, who are conducting this guerrilla-type warfare, uh, deeply embedded behind the lines. This is what 
we know this is what people are talking about. And it's very well known that Zelensky and his top ministers have indicated that the bridge connecting the Russian mainland with Crimea is a military target, and they plan on blowing it up. So this is what is known here. This is what people are talking about. It doesn't seem to have affected tourism along the Black Sea uh, resorts. I just read today that yesterday 38,000 cars crossed the bridge at Kerch coming into Crimea. They're all vacationers from mainland Russia. So I'm not sure what the real feeling is, what the temperature is here in, P in Crimea from both the residents here and the tourists. Life is going on as normal. There's one question that's on everybody's mind, Wilmer and Leon, and it's in connection with the attacks on the nuclear power plant in a town called Zaporozhye. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that these attacks are coming from Ukraine. Why would Russia want to blow up this power plant on its border and risk the lives of millions of people in Russia and Europe? It, it really makes no sense. But here's the question everybody's asking. Why is Moscow still taking their time in putting an end to this when they know that Putin on several occasions has said that if Kiev attacks the Russian mainland, that's Crimea as well, that Russia will attack the decision centers. My friends and many of them who pay attention to the news are really beginning to question why Putin and Russia have not acted decisively in terms of Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And now these direct attacks on Crimea, which, according to Russia, is Russian territory. So this is what people are talking about. I want to go back to a point that you made about the attacks on Crimea, and I think you used the word guerrilla tactics. I think that's what you said. If not, it was something similar to that. There was a story yesterday about soldiers being trained by the British, and they talked about a thousand soldiers were being trained. And I said to myself, well, a thousand soldiers, that isn't going to get you anything it, based upon the whipping that Russia's putting on the Ukraine. So the question that came to my mind was, are those soldiers being trained as guerrillas? Are they going to be sent back into the region and are they being trained as snipers? Are they being trained as guerrillas? Does that question make sense and do you have any sense of the issue? Well, absolutely it makes sense. And given the statements coming from ministers in Kiev, they have not officially claimed attacks, but saying that they have their special ops that are deep, deeply embedded behind the enemy lines, therefore in Crimea, it does not surprise me at all that these would be highly trained specialist in demolition and sabotage attacks. Uh, so 
I have to agree that whether it's 1,000 Brits that are being trained to do this um, doesn't really matter. There are apparently special ops now in Crimea who are planning and preparing to do these acts of sabotage. Let me ask you this, because I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about the Taiwan situation. And I'm throwing this out. One of the things that we discussed was the possibility that, you know, the U.S. is very dangerous, as you know, and could end the world with some kind of a nuclear confrontation. And I, I think most practical people throughout the world are concerned with that right now, that maybe in a way it's kind of Russia and China's job, shall we say, to be... Um, very careful and to not allow the U.S. to drag either of them into a war that could that could turn nuclear to make the economic transition, the military world power transition is kind of handling on its own. But not to say if the U.S. says if you do this, if we do this, you'll attack, because anytime you say that the U.S. is going to do it because they want this. And for Russia to, and China to say, we're not going to bite. We're not. You know, we know you want a broader war. We're not going to give it to you because that could lead to a nuclear war. And for them to be responsible enough to kind of guide the world into a new world order without biting the bait that could lead to nuclear war. Your thoughts on that, Regis? Before you respond, Regis, let me say, Garland, that that's exactly what I was thinking when Regis asked the question about why Russia has not stepped up its military operation. And one of the things that came to my mind, and I'm glad you brought up Taiwan, is before Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, the discussion was China will shoot her plane out of the sky. And China didn't do that. It's like they want them to do they it. They want them to do it. I'm not basically I'm not taking the bait. My plan is working. Yeah. I'm working my plan. I'm planning my work. I'm executing my plan and it's working. Regis. Well, um, I have to admit that to my way of thinking, that is the only reason why Russia and China are not taking the bait. Mm-hmm. I, that's the only way that I can explain why Russia, in particular, has not responded to the attacks on the nuclear power plant and now two attacks on Crimea and the threat to blow up the bridge. Why hasn't Putin acted quickly and decisively? The only explanation can be, in my mind, is what you've just articulated. They are not taking the bait to escalate this conflict. And the reason is that Russia and China have declared to the world, Mm -hmm. and it began on February 2nd in Beijing at the beginning of the Olympics when Putin was there, and they issued a 5,000-word declaration aimed at America saying that U.S. hegemony is over. We are moving into a multipolar world. Since that time, Putin has emphasized this on two or three different occasions. And most recently, at this conference that this is taking place right now, uh, and, and it's very clear, it's very clear if you read that, that Russia and China are looking to end U.S. hegemony by uniting the world, the Southern Hemisphere, BRICS, um, and many of the Asian countries 
who do not want to be subjugated to the United States domination. And it's made perfectly clear they're inviting these other countries to take part in their new economic system that will replace the dollar. And this is, in my mind, a declaration of economic and political war on the United States hegemon. Yeah. And I think we're we're really on to something here, Regis, because I think they look at it. They see the U.S. right now just falling apart in every way, culturally and economically, et cetera. And it's almost like the U.S. is saying, we don't have much time. We got to get in a fight. We got to get in a fight. And Russia and China saying, no, we don't. Time is on our side. You guys are falling apart while we're getting stronger. We're not going to be baited into this fight. We're going to watch you fall apart while we create this new thing. Because I think the key is that new currency, and particularly with Saudi Arabia being part of it, because if oil becomes part from Saudi Arabia becomes part of that basket of currencies that they're saying that they're going to create a new currency, the petrodollar's gone and— Overnight, things change. Your thoughts? No, I, I agree with you absolutely. And, you know, Lavrov was just in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, um, Russia is meeting uh, with countries, powerful countries, Iran, India, Pakistan, uh, very important strategic countries, inviting them all to take part in this new direction. But here's what I find interesting. Putin has made all of these public remarks. It's been on television here. The Russian people are aware of it. But you know what? Everybody I talk to, everybody, Russians now, do not believe that America is in a free fall, a collapse. They think it's not possible. And so I wonder how they're balancing all of these messages that have been coming since February 2nd, very clearly, from Putin and Z, how they balance that with their belief that America is so powerful and so wealthy that collapse just cannot happen. They can't believe it. Isn't that called cognitive dissidence? Yeah. Trust me, we're here and— it's so broken. You know what I mean? It's so fighting amongst each other. The You've got Intel and Congress fighting against each other. It's It really is a mess here in a lot of ways. Trust me on that, Regis. 30 seconds. Yeah, well, what most Russians realize is that Joe Biden uh, is out of it. He, he He's not in charge. They know that. The, the common people. I think Moscow, the Kremlin, the military, their intel services— are very much aware of exactly what is happening in the United States and the collective West, and they're waiting it out. And again, I want to reiterate, I think cognitive dissonance is a major part of the disconnect that you're expressing in the minds of so many people, because it seems to be so implausible that they just, in, in spite of all that's happening around them, they just can't believe that it's happening. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks, guys. Good luck. Keep it up. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Yes, he has returned. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a very interesting piece at redpepper.org entitled, Listen to Local Voices, Not the U.S. or China on Taiwan. Western leftists routinely ignore local demands from Taiwan, where support for the status quo is high. Brian Wei looks at the tensions and misunderstandings surrounding Nancy Pelosi's visit. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer, peace activist, teacher, and analyst, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. He writes... Following a visit to Taiwan by Pelosi, the Chinese government announced four days of live fire drills around Taiwan. The drills were framed by the Chinese government as a blockade, and though they were scheduled to end August 7th, the PLA subsequently announced that military activity would continue. Brian Hui talks about listening to local voices. Your thoughts, KJ No, because that's similar to a lot of what you've been saying. Um, absolutely, but there's a fundamental difference. Uh, when Brian Wei says, listen to local voices, uh, he's really saying, listen to me. And he certainly does not represent local voices from Taiwan. Mm. Uh, and in particular, what he tries to do is he tries to argue or conf- confound the fact that most people on Taiwan Island want the status quo. Uh, this is true. This is absolutely true. 87.4 people of the, t- uh, of the people on Taiwan Island want to maintain the status quo. What's insidious and uh, extraordinarily deceptive about this article is that Brian Wei tries to argue that the status quo is a kind of desire for de facto independence. And that's absolutely not true. There's only a small percentage of the status quo actually want independence eventually in some form. And so this this is the kind of article that you actually have to watch out for because it uh, seems like a friend, but it's actually a false friend. It's misleading you. Another thing that I'd like to get your thoughts on is there's an article, President Putin breaks his silence on Pelosi's Taiwan trip. We see that the Chinese are going to be doing some military drills with the Russians here shortly. The special relationship or strategic alliance, as they put it, that's closer than friends, (laughs) seems to be getting even tighter, particularly after the Taiwan incident. Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. So first, there is the overt and visible support of the Chinese position, especially regarding Taiwan Island, regarding Pelosi's visit. And I think this is more signaling that uh, Russia and China, if anything happens in Taiwan, certainly Russia will be there uh, to help uh, the PRC. uh, And that, um, you know, anybody who has other thoughts uh, should take that into consideration. President Putin says the U.S. escapade, and to me that's a very interesting and apt word, towards Taiwan is not just a voyage by an irresponsible politician, but part of the purpose-oriented and deliberate U.S. strategy designed to destabilize the situation and sow chaos in the region and the world. Uh, I think that's important because we talked about yesterday, I want to say, that you can't view Nancy Pelosi's escapade to Taiwan in the context of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, 
She's the third in power in the United States, the Speaker of the House, second in succession if something happens to the president. So to discuss this in the context of Nancy Pelosi doesn't really describe or capture the fact that this is U.S. foreign policy and she is one of the emissaries of that policy. And the other, talk about the timing of Putin's comments because other than saying to, I believe, saying to China, I got help, I'll help you if you need me to, he stayed out of the fray until now. Yes. Well, the timing is is never a mistake when it comes to political statements like this. And I think it has to do with the fact that there is uh, another recent uh, uh, delegation that visited Taiwan Mm -hmm. Island, followed by more military exercises by Chinese. And also there is an impending uh, passage through the Taiwan Straits that the U.S. threatened to do uh, within a week or two. So I think this is a a kind of a precautionary message, uh, time to uh, coincide or to send a message regarding that. But you're absolutely correct that we cannot think of Nancy Pelosi as doing some kind of independent escapade because she happens to be some independent part of a government branch. No, this is absolutely coordinated. Uh, And the fact is that, you know, she received a military escort uh, into uh, the country and out. And so this is coordinated policy. Uh, It may look miscoordinated, but if we pan out, we can see that it serves a very specific uh, tactical and strategic value, which is essentially provocation and salami slicing. And we also have to understand this escapade or the Taiwan Island issue not simply as an issue around whether somebody can visit or not visit Taiwan or whether Taiwan is independent or not. These are non-issues. The real issue is that Taiwan is an outpost of U.S. empire. It always has been. And for uh, a, a short period, it kind of went dormant. And now the U.S. is seeking to rekindle and reuse it as an outpost of U.S. empire at, uh, as the centerpiece of its Asia pivot. It's the closest part of the uh, first island chain to China. And so from the Chinese standpoint, uh, their statement is not only is this a historical issue of sovereignty, it is a geostrategic, geo, uh, geo, it's a geostrategic issue. Uh, of of crisis proportions, and we will not allow Taiwan to be re-weaponized as it has been many, many times in the past. You know, I view Taiwan through the, the lens of great power competition in that there are three great powers, and one of them has come to border countries of the other two, and they're loading them up with weapons and loading them up with uh, propaganda and rhetoric, and those other two are not going to tolerate it in the same way that the U.S. wouldn't tolerate it. That being said, Wilmer and I have been discussing something. I want to get your thoughts on it. I think that China's showing restraint— 
um, after Pelosi's visit is part of this, that Russia and China have discussed, look, the world is changing, the unipolar moment is over, and we are ushering in some alternative economics and power systems and dynamics. The U.S. has no other way to address this, and they're trying to bait us into a fight. They want to fight, which could end up in a nuclear war and ending us all, and that China and Russia kind of have the duty, shall we say, to show restraint, to usher the world into a new multipolar moment without engaging, taking the hook in, in, and engaging in this battle that the U.S. wants that is dangerous, that could end all humankind, and that that's what they're going to do. They're not going to take the bait because time is on their side. Your thoughts, KJ? You're absolutely correct. Time is on uh, China's side, on Russia's side. It's on the side of multipolarity. As we've said many times before, the unipolar moment it was not only squandered, but it is now, uh, you know, moving into the rearview mirror. And so you're absolutely correct uh, that China uh, is trying to uh, exercise restraint. And of course, the U.S. is like, uh, you know, the person at the bar as the final drinks have been called and the house lights are going up. You know, they've struck out, their credit card is running out, and they're spoiling for a fight. And it's always a bad idea to get into a fight with this person. Will China avoid the fight? As far as Taiwan is concerned, the PRC wants peaceful reunification. That's what it aspires to. The question is, can it allow or afford uh, the remilitarization, the independence of secession and the remilitarization of Taiwan Island, literally a dagger held against its throat? Uh, and will it, how will it respond if that uh, proceeds apace? Uh, this is the $64,000 question. I do not have an answer to that, but uh, we can point out you know, what many people have point out, pointed out, that there is a real desperation. Uh, there is no bottom to U.S. animosity towards uh, the People's Republic of China. And uh, China has to take all of these factors into account. China's U.S. ambassador says U.S. has gone too far over Taiwan. And I think it's important for people to really listen to this language because China does not usually speak in such provocative terms. Chinese ambassador Quinn Gang, he held a press conference in Washington yesterday to discuss the U.S. policy toward Taiwan. And I think it's also important to note that he's saying this on U.S. soil. He says, we've noted what the U.S. military has said about the U.S. military exercises and navigation in the Taiwan Strait, but I call on the U.S. to refrain and exercise restraint and not to do anything to escalate tensions. If there are any moves to violate China's territorial integrity, China will respond. Again, that's very direct language. China tends not to be that direct. And he said it in Washington, D.C. He didn't say this in, in Beijing. He's standing in Washington, D.C. saying this. Yeah. So, you know, this has the flavor or the quality of a direct warning, perhaps even, you know, some kind of a uh, ultimatum. You know, I don't want to put words in the ambassador's mouth, but mm -hmm. has gone too far means that, you know, we have reached our limit. And, you know, this is please don't uh, go any further. Do not escalate. 
any further or else we will respond. As I said, the Chinese do not want war. They do not want kinetic engagement. But if they're pushed to the wall as they were, for example, in 1950 during the Korean War, they will respond at whatever cost, uh, uh, whatever cost. So <laughs> I think uh, the first thing for us, once again, to re- remember is that U.S. policy is extraordinarily duplicitous. You know, uh, it is uh, trying to use Taiwan as uh, uh, an imperial outpost. Taiwan Island would not exist without the geostrategic designs of the United States. It's like, uh, you know, the state of Israel. It's, mm-hmm. it's supported. It's kept alive. It only exists by virtue of its utility in U.S. geopolitical design. And if the U.S. wants to play with that and use that, uh, you know, trump card uh, to create uh, diversion and escalation and even war, I think the Chinese will meet the U.S. Uh, wherever they wherever they go. KJ, no, let's hope it doesn't get to that. Thank you, as always. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in the gray zone entitled, CBS Delete Documentary Promo on Corrupt Ukraine Military Aid After U.S. Government Pressure. And this report was originally published in Antiwar.com. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl, as always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So CBS News retracted a documentary it briefly released last Sunday after pressure from the Ukrainian government. The original documentary CBS put out examined the flow of military aid to Ukraine and quoted someone familiar with the process who said in April that only 30 percent of the arms were making it to the front line. And there were a number of other statements in this piece that really, really highlight the fact that this is a this is a a, a fool's errand, uh, Ted Rawl. You know, uh, I couldn't help but think uh, when I read heard about this uh, contretemps, one of my favorite pretentious words, is that uh, it's a it reminded me of CBS and what they did with Dan Rather, uh, you know, with the uh, it, it te- the Texas Air National Guard uh, documents that mm-hmm. showed that uh, George W. Bush. Um, you know, had had uh, received a uh, an, a waiver from serving in Vietnam unfairly, and uh, some some right wing blogger uh, purported to prove that the documents in question were fraudulent based on the idea that an old IBM Selectric element uh, had a font that just that that that. that that the font that was used didn't exist at that time. It wasn't a font. It was a typeface for one of those old uh, IBM Selectric typewriters. Actually, that that thing did, you know, it absolutely did exist at the time. The document was legitimate. Nevertheless, 
CBS stuck with uh, the political pressure and fired Dan Rather, you know, who was a multi-million dollar earning, uh, you know, legendary long-term CBS Evening News anchorman. And so, you know, if they can if they can roll over in response to that kind of ridiculously wimpy political pressure against someone as powerful as Dan Rather, it's not at all surprising that they would roll in response to the Ukrainian government uh, and and their political pressure. But the thing is that the rollback really doesn't pass the smell test because, uh, you know, as our colleague John Kiriakou can say, um, you know, weapons have a tendency and ammunition have a tendency to suffer from shrinkage uh, when they are shipped uh, through across international borders under the best of circumstances. And that's going to be just inherently even more true in a country like Ukraine, which even corporate media outlets have to concede is a country that has very poor transparency. It is ranked very low on Transparency International's uh, list of uh, anti-corruption countries. It is a country that has a long history of uh, economic and political corruption. So it's not at all surprising that these weapons didn't make it to the front and they started showing up in places like the dark web for sale. So, you know, I mean, it's it's pathetic and it's lame, but it's not surprising. And, you know, I think this actually segues perfectly into the next article, Sweeps Week on FBI TV. National news media and federal law enforcement are now as indistinguishable in America as in any autocratic country anywhere. In that, if you've got a bunch of national, you know, national security goons on TV all the time, then anything that would run contrary to the narrative that they are pushing, particularly if it's factual, would be kind of hard to get through. Um, And it just shows this is not news. When I'm seeing CIA guys all day and FBI guys, this is not CNN is not a news station. MSNBC are not news stations. They become just propaganda arms of the deep state. Your thoughts? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, look, I always tend to focus on the political bias of these national security goons, as you uh I think rightly put it. But there's also more to it than that. They're not even really credible experts on what they purportedly know. I mean, there's people in academia and journalism who have more of a bird's eye view of what's going on with these topics uh, than these quote unquote experts, these you know retired generals and uh, you know former NSA people that they bring on all the time, who are, by the way, often uh, former and retired. Yeah. And 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 then if they were work and if they were still working there, you know, they're not even allowed to speak freely, and certainly to keep their jobs, they don't speak freely. So they're literally people who can't really know that much about what they have to say, and whatever they do know, they can't really tell you. So I mean, it's one of those. Even it's not even a question of like their personal integrity or their affiliation. I mean, it's just it's like literally impossible for them to tell the truth because they they neither know it uh, nor uh, are allowed to tell it. And it's also interesting, and I think it's important at this point to bring this up again to understand how. To a great degree, this has developed over time, because if we go back, say, to the 60s and the 70s, you had the intelligence state, the security state planting stories in newspapers, or you had journalists sending their stories to the intelligence apparatchiks for clearance. And now we've gone from that 
to they have just now become the analysts and the contributors and to a great degree have just removed the middleman. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. And uh, the thing is, you know, what's kind of astonishing about it is that it's right in our face. I mean, you don't have to really be an expert in media to, to see what's going on. All you have to do is just watch no matter what, you know, no matter who you are or your lot in life, you know, you can clearly see retired NSA general, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a person that you know not to trust if you have any brains at all. And, uh, you know, back in the, back in the, in the fifties and sixties, this was all behind the scenes. Um, you know, everything that came out in the newspaper or on network television, it came out with a veneer of legitimacy. That veneer is gone and somehow it doesn't seem to matter. Absolutely. Now, uh, another article that we have to discuss, and that is Meta steps up information control ahead of U.S. elections. As we kind of know what's going on, the Democrats are set to be probably crushed in the midterms. And let me just say this. And it ain't like the Republicans are better. I'm not saying, hooray, the Republicans are going to win. Just another flavor of empire, a bit of a different flavor. But it looks like Facebook and Twitter are working to clamp down on information related to the elections. It certainly looks to me like election interference. Your thoughts, Ted? Yeah, it's a kind of a it's it's ironic considering that uh, Facebook and other companies uh, like that are always uh, complaining about uh, other <laughs> forms of interference in American elections when they are you know psychologically projecting what they themselves are doing. Um, yeah, the, I mean, election interference is kind of this grotesque. Uh, subject. I mean, you have these two two corporate parties that are very, very similar, who basically are trying to get each other's partisans not to vote and control the and and control the media into saying that other the other side is trying to prevent their side from voting. And in a way, it's all true, but in a way, it all cancels it, itself out because there are only these two parties that are very similar. And it's uh, you know it's it's kind of just this you just have to roll your eyes. But um, social media plays a particularly pernicious and toxic role in all this. We need a real democracy, but we're not going to get one the way things are going. They're tightening rules on voting misinformation and advertising. They will ban new political, social, and electoral issue ads during the last week. They don't want any October surprises, factual or otherwise. Now, that I find very interesting. Don't disrupt the last week of the election with facts. Please don't do that. Especially we don't want facts. Anything else with facts. We don't want facts. And then to further ensure the sanctity of the vote, Meta says it is investing in proactive threat detection with the aim of countering coordinated harassment and threats of violence against election officials and poll workers. Uh, Let me add one other thing. An article we covered a couple weeks ago, Ted, was most of the fact-checking organizations Facebook uses in Ukraine are directly funded by Washington. So they're stepping up their fact-checking. That's good to know. Ted? Well, obviously nobody's in favor of threats against election workers or officials. Uh, But you know, look, if, uh, you know, if someone's running for, say, uh, governor or Congress and there's 
uh, some kind of big scandal that breaks three days before the election. I'm sorry. I think that's extremely pertinent. And there's probably no time when voters are paying more attention than right before the election. Studies after study has shown that voters don't really focus in on an election often until they walk into the voting booth. Like perhaps somebody's son's laptop could be found just before an election and <laughs> they could have all kinds of mysterious things on it. As an example, just well, to, you know. It's just a, yeah, as a, purely theoretically, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, of course, in that case, it's like uh, you know the thing that apparently we're not allowed to report on that for like years ahead of the election. Um, the not just a week. I mean, you know, I think about the story. One of my favorite suppressed stories about uh, George W. Bush in his debate against, I believe, against John Kerry. Uh, where he had a mysterious square object on his shoulder that the New York Times pretty much confirmed was some kind of squawk box where someone was appeared to be feeding Bush the debate answers remotely, um, and uh, they you know they had an expert weigh in on that. They had the article written. They decided to hold it until after the election because they said it, it might change the result and interfere with the election. Isn't that kind of the point? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that should affect the outcome of an election. And bragging it had banned more than 270 white supremacist organizations and deleted over 2.5 million content items that tried to organize hate in the first quarter of 2022 alone. Okay, that's great. But the way that this article is structured, that to me glosses over the fact that they don't want even the facts to make their way into the social dialogue. No, um, and you know, and that's really not their place, right? I mean, uh, Facebook and the and other social media companies claim that they are neutral arbiters that people just post whatever they want. But all of this is the, this is the behavior of a publisher that is not only editing and picking and choosing winners and what gets published and what doesn't get published, but is is choosing how much it gets published. And they're doing it very aggressively. So, uh, you know, I, I'm also really interested in the legal ramifications of how they avoid legal liability when someone posts something that is, for whatever reason, illegal. Um, you know, if they're treating it like an edited a publication platform like, say, uh, you know, NewYorkTimes.com, then they should have the same legal exposure as opposed to the, what they argue is that they're like a telecom like AT&T where, you know, if someone calls and makes, a, say, a threat of violence by phone, that's not AT&T's fault. They don't edit the phone calls. Um, so, I'm, you know, I think this is going to have some interesting ramifications for them in the, in the future. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Putin lashes out at West's, quote, vanishing, end quote, hegemony. 
outlines Russia's goals. As the Russian leader noticed, Russia will, quote, take other steps to build a more democratic world, end quote. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Western countries are desperately clinging to their, quote, vanishing hegemony, end quote, but the unipolar world order is becoming a thing of the past, Russian President Putin said in his address to the audience of the 10th Moscow Conference on International Security yesterday. Your thoughts, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I think he has a point. And I must say that ordinarily, when I see articles in the newspaper concerning Henry Kissinger, <laughs> I automatically use them to line my birdcage. But the most recent article involving Secretary Kissinger needs to be considered mm-hmm. because he says that Washington is staring into the abyss by seeking to confront Russia and China simultaneously. Now, if this were a court of law, he could qualify as an expert witness on that question because it was in 1972 that he made the entente, the overture to Beijing, which I would maintain was critical to the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union by 1991. Uh, That is to say that despite this bleating and braying on Wall Street and Washington about how the collapse of the Soviet Union was a result of Reagan's Star Wars, was a result of other uh, fantastical schemes. It was actually old-fashioned geopolitics. And so now Mr. Kissinger is recognizing that Washington has overstated its strength, that it does not realize that it has, is going to have difficulty, <clears throat> to put it mildly, confronting Beijing and Moscow simultaneously particularly after having built up Beijing in recent decades to being the juggernaut that it is. And I think Mr. Kitchener also was reflecting upon what future historians might also see as a turning point. That is to say, the delegation led by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, followed by the delegation led by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts to Taiwan. This has Beijing's quite upset, to to put it mildly, and uh, you can expect more attempts to intimidate to Taiwan, which, of course, uh, China sees as its own territory. And I I must say, Washington may have opened the door, a door that it did not need to open, because as we speak, there is a growing movement for sovereignty in the Hawaiian archipelago, which the United States seized illicitly in the 1890s and incorporated as a state in 1959. Imagine, if you will, if China, without the permission of Washington, would send a delegation to Honolulu. Uh, The United States would consider that minimally a gross interference in China's internal, uh, excuse me, in Washington's and the United States' internal affairs. And then, with regard to this multipolarity, 
which the uh, Russian-Chinese uh, de facto alliance signals. And by the way, they're planning uh, military maneuvers within days, which I'm sure will be uh, causing great consternation at the Pentagon. Keep in mind as well, the recent four-hour meeting in Sochi, Russia, between President Erdogan of Turkey, once known as Turkey, and President Putin. I think that Washington now has to contemplate the realistic prospect that Turkey, which has been spurned for membership in the European Union since it gained candidate status in 1999, might also be reconsidering its relationship to NATO particularly in light of the uh, ascension to NATO of Finland and Sweden, which upset Turkey to no end because uh, Ankara feels that these two Scandinavian nations are housing uh, Kurdish dissidents, which uh, Ankara thinks should be extradited. But this could also lead to an economic shift, uh, that is to say Turkey or Turkey aligning more closely with Russia and the former republics of the Soviet Union in this uh, Eurasian Economic Union, which ultimately is yoked to the People's Republic of China. And that could be a real game-changer in terms of unipolarity's demise. And I would hope and imagine that the State Department is burning the midnight oil, uh, contemplating everything I've just said. However, what's particularly dispiriting, I must say, is that as these Copernican changes unfold in the international arena, uh, you have uh, many of our black intellectuals, black organizations, and black leaders who are totally oblivious. I assume they feel that the status quo is eternal, and I'm afraid to say that those who've taken such a lunatic idea in the past have had their fingers burned minimally. There's an interesting story in Sputnik. Russia plays key role in Africa's military and economic stability, South Africa's defense minister. I think two things that are interesting about that. One of the comments that were made by the South African representative, Russia was never a colonizer of Africa. I think we know who that's, uh, who that's aimed at. But later on, we look down the story, and what they say is that Africa, Africa is, quote, beginning to wake up as a unitary force that must be respected. And that makes me think of Malcolm X's discussion about black people are going to wake up and how important it is for people to wake up before they can um, move forward and assert themselves for independence and strength. Your thoughts? Well, certainly there is something to that. Uh, I've seen more and more in the African press a recognition of the demographic reality that within decades, uh, Africans will comprise about one quarter of people on planet Earth. Africans are about 12, 13, 14 uh, percent as we speak. Africa comprises already 54 members of the United Nations General Assembly uh, of a body of about 200. There was talk when Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, visited Uganda about uh, restructuring the United Nations Security Council to guarantee uh, African membership and a more diverse membership uh, on that uh, penultimate body. And I think as well that that reference to Russia not being a colonizer needs to be taken very seriously because as the Western European nations led by Britain and France were sailing south to plunder Africa and west to plunder the Americas, 
uh, Russia was moving east uh, with, uh, as we have said before, their window on the Pacific, Vladivostok, only established about 1860. And at the same time, we recognize that Russia has a unique history with regard to black people. Can uh, I'm not sure if your audience recognizes that the man considered to be the father of the Russian language, speaking of Pushkin, the great poet of the 19th century, was of African descent. Can one say something similar about France or Germany or Britain or Portugal or Spain, for example? And so these realities are becoming ever more glaring. And with regard to that meeting that took place in Moscow, that opened our discussion. Interesting to note that the South African defense minister was present. Uh, the defense minister went, despite uh, stinging criticism, interestingly enough, from the Voice of America correspondent speaking of the U.S. propaganda arm, which uh, has correspondents in South Africa. Uh, that correspondent makes a habit of scorning and scoring Africans who venture beyond the demarcations that Washington has set. But I'm afraid to say that that particular correspondent, speaking of Darren Taylor, that is his name, is going to probably have to ruin his larynx and his voice box by screeching and screaming about uh, such visits as the South African defense minister to Moscow because that's going to be the wave of the future. And to your point about the wave of the future, there is a piece in uh, popularresistance.org, Africans strategize in Washington against Western-backed leaders. The United States and its European allies only care about human rights violations when it benefits them. That's what a few dozen members of the Horn of Africa and East Africa diaspora agreed upon as they gathered on the 13th of August outside of Washington, D.C. This was a regional conference of the National Unity Platform, a political party in Uganda, brought together members of the country's diaspora from New York to D.C. And final point, the West wants to change regimes for itself, not for Africans. We remember Libya. Your thoughts, Dr. Gerald Horn? We certainly do remember the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya approximately a decade ago. And I might add that one of the reasons for his execution was that he was trying to move away from U.S. hegemony, move away from the dollar. And in that regard, keep in mind that President Xi Jinping, who has been in China uh, ever since the outbreak of COVID, is making his first foreign trip. Where is he going? To Saudi Arabia, which is quite striking because it's bruited that on the agenda with the de facto leader, Mohammed bin Salman, in Riyadh, will be some discussion of moving away from the dollar with regard to trading Saudi's uh, valuable commodities, speaking of oil, uh, to their most valued customers, speaking of China. Now, contrast that with uh, Mr. Biden crawling on hands and knees uh, to Saudi Arabia just weeks ago and basically being spurned. And speaking of Saudi Arabia, those men and women from Africa meeting outside Washington have a point because Saudi Arabia, as you know, is a mass human rights violator. Uh, scores have been executed already this year, with scores more uh, lining up to meet a similar grisly fate. 
And yet, that did not prevent Mr. Biden uh, from kissing the ring, uh, figuratively, of Mohammed bin Salman. And so I'm happy to see that these African exiles had the gumption to come to Washington, or at least the outskirts, to basically unmask the hypocrisy and double standards of U.S. foreign policy. The other thing is Africa's going to play a significant role in this, I guess, new world order that China and Russia are putting together, and I think they realize it. Got about two minutes, if you could comment on that. Well, certainly that's the case, and I would urge and caution uh, people in the black community in particular to try to refrain from tailing after the State Department with regard to China bashing. Uh, What I mean is it's inconsistent and incongruent on the one hand, to talk about taking the United States to the United Nations and to the world court with regard to genocide and human rights violations against black Americans, and on the other hand, tailing after U.S. foreign policy when it comes to China bashing. I mean, what do people expect? That when they get to the United Nations or the world court, won't they need allies? And I dare say that even our Cuban friends will be reluctant to ally with black Americans who tail after U.S. foreign policy because they've had enough experience with our community to know that too often in the past, uh, we have basically put an emphasis on the second word in our self-descriptor. That is to say African-American with the emphasis being on, I'm afraid to say, American. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mondo Weiss has a piece entitled, Israel's Friends Struggle to Justify Unprovoked Attack that Killed 17 Children. Israel's supporters are crowing that the Gaza attack was successful, but these atrocities have blinded themselves to the moral dimensions of such awful force. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. As always, it's my pleasure to be with you guys. Israel's onslaught on Gaza last week was shocking to many of us, according to Mondo Weiss. It was unprovoked by any Palestinian attack and compromised three days of strikes on a captive, fenced-in population. Those strikes were aimed at the leadership of a militant group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and killed and injured many children. Laith, can we say that there's a direct correlation between the colony of Israel's attacks and upcoming elections? Yes and no. On the one hand, uh, of course, there's an uptake of uh, genocidal behavior by the Zionist colony when there's a, an election happening. But also this Zionist colony cannot uh, live without spilling the blood of children. 
Palestinian children. This is this is a a ritual, you know, for the survival of this uh, godforsaken uh, state. And uh, I would like to note also that just today, uh, the uh, one of the main newspapers in the Zionist colony had its published a piece uh, where the Zionist military admitted that their own uh, missiles were the ones that slaughtered six Palestinian children that were visiting the grave of their father in uh, a cemetery in northern Gaza. You know, if you remember for uh, days, uh, the Zionists uh, denied it and uh, actually claimed that the Palestinian resistance uh, missiles misfired and hit the cemetery. And so, of course, the Western media is not going to cover this right now. The whole intention of the lie originally is to diffuse. And by the time the truth comes out, the interest of the Western media is not there. So even now that the Zionists are telling the truth, it is not because they want to tell the truth. It's because there's nobody that's going to cover it in the West. And uh, ultimately, uh, Zionism is a genocidal uh, ideology and the whole, uh, you know, colony of uh, Israel cannot exist without continued genocide of the indigenous people of Palestine. I'm not going to tie everything to Ukraine, but some things I think have to be. When you look at what's going on there and you see American-made weapons being used to fire directly on civilian targets in the Russian areas and the Donetsk areas and kill every day, kill citizens and not a peep from the U.S. empire and its vassals, you see the Israelis firing. These are not military targets. You know, they're dropping directly onto apartment buildings full of people and, and areas where they know that there are civilians everywhere and you don't hear a peep from the U.S. empire, it makes it obvious that this, you know, kind of one-sided world order is unfair and that a significant amount of people in the world can see it clearly and, and are not going to continue forward with it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the whoever had uh, the illusion uh, that they can believe in the American dream uh, can see that now it's an American nightmare. Uh, that is set over the world. And uh, we saw, of course, this tactic of targeting civilians, uh, specifically, let's say, to go back to the, the Zionists. Uh, I mean, I can, I, I, I would bet my life that there hasn't been one uh, attack, a war by the Zionists on, on Palestinian uh, peoples that didn't include, for instance, direct attacks on cemeteries. For some reason, <laughs> they like to even uh, attack Palestinians in their death uh, and anybody that's visiting them. Look, this is this is intentional, the targeting of civilians in Donetsk uh, and the Donbass region, the targeting of civilians in Yemen, the targeting of civilians in Iraq, in Syria, in Palestine, in Afghanistan. This is intended to break the will of a people that are resisting, and uh, and 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 of course, uh, it is a losing battle. If you don't go all the way and genocide a whole population like the United States did with the indigenous people, then the people that are resisting will have a more urgent, uh, you know, need to resist you. We saw how the people in, in, in Vietnam uh, and in Korea resisted mass killings 
uh, and won their battles. And the, uh, as long as the, um, the American empire doesn't go all the way into full genocide, it will lose. And this is the truth. The facts we have in front of us is the, uh, the Zionist colony has only two choices in front of it. One, full genocide of the Palestinian people to achieve its uh, strategic goal of uh, permanency. Two, accepting equality with indigenous people, which means there is no more uh, Zionist colony. And this is what happens. It's a one or zero, win or lose situation. And uh, history, geography tells us that the Zionist colony is at its deathbed. I know why they've been attacking cemeteries, and a lot of people aren't aware that they're afraid of the upcoming Palestinian zombie apocalypse. So you can, <laughs> I didn't know if you were aware of that, but that's that's what's motivating them. Uh, there's interesting language being used in, in this Mondo Weiss piece, and and. Quote, the escalation took a severe toll on the civilian population. This was from the U.N.'s special coordinator, calling it uh, the Middle East. I call it an orgy of violence. The attacks by Israel on Gaza are cruel and heartbreaking, according to Jonathan Kutab of Friends of Sabil, North America. Uh, in three short days, the Israeli military managed to rain death and destruction on Gaza, assassinating another Islamic Jihad leader, killing 49. Palestinians, including 17 children. My point to you is the language. Are you seeing a change in the language that is coordinated or that is paralleling a change in the Palestinian response? You see, I think the specifically the Palestinian diaspora that speaks in English uh, is maturing in its uh, ability to stand up for itself. I have been speaking in the same language for 20 years mm -hmm. uh, and plus in, in Canada. For a long time, I was ostracized for this language. But now the Palestinian population, the resistance on the ground in Palestine is strong and, and defending itself and pushing forward for liberation. And also the Palestinian diaspora is, is, is uh, uh, taking, uh, you know, following the lead of the Palestinians on the ground and finally are becoming courageous enough to speak about Jewish white supremacy, to speak about the Zionism as, a, as an ill, as a cancer upon humanity. And uh, we're uh, not going to back down. There's a uh, another piece in antiwar.com, Turkey trades heavy shelling with Syrian Kurds, child killed in shelling near Kobani. Off and on fighting, just west of the Syrian-Kurdish border town of Kobani has escalated into a heavy exchange of artillery fire between the Kurdish YPG and Turkish military. What's going on here and, and why this, why now? So first note, I would say there is no town called Kobani. There's a town called Ain al-Arab, which means the eye of the Arabs or the well, the spring of water that, that one of the sources of the Tijris uh, and uh, this is uh, what had happened is that the Kurdish militias, the Kurdish Contras, uh, fired from near a Syrian military post uh, in the town. Um, and instead of uh, the Turkish military firing back at these Kurdish uh, Contras, they actually targeted a Syrian military post. And it was 
uh, almost, uh, I think it was nine Syrian soldiers that were martyred and uh, at least a dozen that were injured. And this comes at a point, of course, where we heard multiple times the foreign affairs minister of Turkey uh, claiming that they are ready to uh, build new relations with Syria, to normalize uh, and, you know, even exchange ambassadors. Um, so I, it's it's a flip-flop situation from the Turkish uh, government. And it's also a clear uh, instigation by the Kurdish militias who hid beside a Syrian military post in order to make the target as the Syrian uh, military. Of course, there is the unfortunate situation of a, a civilian child that was, was martyred, as you mentioned, but the vast majority of those who were killed were Syrian uh, military personnel who had nothing to do with this uh, attack, a provocation by the Kurdish uh, contrast. The other thing is the Kurds are in an interesting position because, you know, they kind of felt like they could work with the U.S. and let's be quite frank and steal some of the land of the Syrian government for themselves. And once again, you know, which is should be expected, the U.S. kind of leaves them hanging out to dry to get bombed and they're being bombed fighting with the U.S. ally and they're in losing. It seems like the Kurds, I would have thought in 1991, they'd have learned, but they never learned. They ally with the neocons in Washington. They don't get anything out of it, and they ended up, end up getting bombed or blown up and left out to dry. Well, that's what they get out of it. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Late. And their leadership gets a lot of money out of the ah. blood of their own people, right? So you have, you have right now uh, 90% of the Syrian oil and gas being looted by and, – and the wheat and the cotton, which, by the way, the cotton of Syria is better than – than Egyptian cotton is the highest rated cotton in the world. And it's all being looted, exported by these Kurdish militias under the protection of the American military. Most of this going to the Zionist colony, by the way, the, that's what's uh, you know running the industries in 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 the Zionist colony right now is the looted gas and oil of Syria and, and Iraq. Uh, and, uh, you know, you look at it, of course, we know the inter human record, the human history tells us that anyone who is a traitor to their country, when the the uh, the power that you betrayed your own country uh, takes over, you are the first to be killed because they can't trust you to also flip on them. This is this is a lesson that's not only for the Kurdish people; it's a lesson for. Uh, a human, any decent human, you cannot betray your country and expect to be not to be on the chopping board first before anybody else when the colonial power takes over. Uh, their future is already written in stone. We know where this will end. Syria will take back its land and all those Kurdish militias, whoever fought on the side of the occupying power, whoever thought that they can uh, change the demographics of North Syria and rule as a minority over the indigenous Semitic uh, uh, Arabs and Assyrians of the land, they will uh, either have to run away hanging on a plane like the Afghan uh, you know, treasonous uh, people did, and or they, have, they will be put in jail by the Syrian military. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. 
You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, yes, Wilmer. Yes, he has returned. <laughs> Thank you, Wilmer. With a vengeance, him, an angry I vengeance. Him, I found him wandering the streets and <laughs> lassoed him back in. There's a piece in Orinoco Tribune entitled, Colombia's First Leftist President Will Bring Historic Change If the U.S. Lets Him. Colombia is the latest Latin American country to turn from the right and possibly stand up to Washington with the inauguration of Gustavo Petro. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, the American Invasion of Iraq, Nicholas Davies. Nicholas, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the piece opens, it's a historic day in Colombia as the country inaugurates former guerrilla Gustavo Petro as its first leftist president and Francia Marquez as its first vice president of African descent. This was unthinkable not long ago. And before this unlikely team now lie the combined challenges of standing up to U.S. domination and fixing decades of social injustice. And Nick, this piece gets to a point that Garland and I have been asking on this show and probably have presented to you a number of times as we have discussed what's happening in the global south, and that is global imperial hegemons don't go quietly into the night. Your thoughts on this piece and your thoughts with particularly with Colombia being kind of the linchpin of American hegemony in the region. Uh, your thoughts, Nicholas Davies. Yeah, this is I mean, this this is a day that, you know, so many, so many people probably thought would never come to Colombia of all places. And and I mean, we really have to hope this is this is a real turning point for Latin America. And of course, you know, Colombia is a linchpin, but in a way, an even bigger linchpin is Brazil. Mm -hmm. And um, and there we have Lula um, ready to return as president and really, you know, substantially leading uh, Bolsonaro in the polls. And, you know, what a... What, what, you know, just what a transformation this is. I mean, the, the, um, I, I, it, this makes me think of, um, you know, Fukuyama's essay about the end of history at the end of the Cold War. Um, the U.S. power establishment and military-industrial complex approached the world as if, you know, as if it was all over, and all that remained to do was just to to wipe out a few. I think I think Wolfowitz referred to them as, you know, a few Stalinist holdovers from from the Cold War. You know, meaning people like President Assad in Syria. And, and Saddam Hussein 
Yemen and in Iraq, and you know they they thought they really thought they could somehow run the board and and reach some kind of full spectrum dominance, um, as as uh, Pentagon planners referred to it, and uh, and what a you know what a different story. Is, is taking place in the world, um, you know, in this new war between NATO and Ukraine, most of the global South just simply wants no part of it. I mean, the, the idea that the, that the people of the world would 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 just roll over and accept U.S. domination in the 21st century is really being challenged. But, you know, I mean, there is a real struggle. As you said, the U.S. is not going quietly into that dark night. Um, um, The the U.K., where I just returned from, is not either. They've been right there egging the U.S. on and standing by their side. And and, um, and the U.K. has been the third largest... um, uh, the third largest military budget in the world over the last 20 years, you know, far, far more than Russia, um, you know, and third behind the U.S. and China. Um, and and the, the, U, the U.K. Is, is still as aggressive on the world stage as the U.S. Um, so... Um, you know, this is this is this is a real this is a very, very dangerous time we live in, but at the same time a very hopeful time. And what is happening in Latin America really should should be a source of inspiration and um and and a lesson to the world. it should be a lesson to the the warmongers in Washington who who thought that as I said they could they could run the board and take over the whole world after the end of the Cold War you know that this new American century is turning out to be um, you know a, a very very short one um, you know maybe maybe a quarter of a century and and uh, disappearing fast in my opinion. Let me ask you this, Nick. When I look at what's going on in South America, let me ask your perspective on the big picture worldwide. You know, a few months ago, we saw people of Mali, you know, they're kicking the French out. They're protesting. They're holding up pictures of the Russian and Chinese leaders. We see a lot of pushback around the world. Recently, I saw a video here in the last couple of days where Tony Blinken was somewhere with the South African, you know, diplomatic representative, and he's smiling. And when the South African diplomatic diplomatic representative started speaking, she started talking about the U.S. was bullying, basically, you know, lambasting Blinken while he was in the room. Your thoughts on how what's happening in South America fits into the big picture worldwide with some of the other global South countries? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I mean what's, ha- what's happened, I think, in the last 20 years or so is that, is that um, you know, the, the U.S. has it just dramatically misread um the situation the the u s leaders have misread the situation and um 
and are now facing the consequences of of their serial aggression against country after country their their efforts to use their you know the position of the dollar in the world and uh, the 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 financial power of the US banking system as a as a cudgel to um you know to bully and and manipulate and and force uh you know smaller countries to 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 do whatever the US wants them to do including detaining uh diplomats as they go about their their travels around the world and um um <clears throat> And and things like that, and 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 simply, you know, imposing these economic sanctions, which are now seriously backfiring in the case of Russia, um, you know, and and the the U.S. is has been acting as if it already has the you know the the total global power that it that it seeks and. And I mean, one of the astonishing things to me on, on in the global picture is that the Western Europeans and uh, the Eastern Europeans too, um, y- you know, are, are still, you know, reluctantly in many cases, but 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 tacitly going along with um, the U.S ambitions of global domination and um you know we i really have to wonder what the end result of this you know horrific war in ukraine is going to be in terms of that relationship between the united states and its yes men in europe um and you know this this really you know, as as the U.S. ambitions are unraveling in Latin America and Africa and around the world, um, you know, I look forward to the day that uh, that Europe that Europe will declare independence <laughs> from the U.S. empire. There's a piece in Orinoco Tribune that I think is incredibly telling. Colombia's President Petro. Guaido's presidency is non-existent. Uh, This past Sunday, during a conversation with a journalist from a Colombian news outlet, Petro said it's time for the normalization of relations with Venezuela to be reflected in binational trade and production. And then there is a tweet saying that Colombia's Gustavo Pedro uses Plato's allegory of the cave to illustrate that like the shadows on the cave wall, Juan Guaido's presidency is an illusion. It does not exist. That, to me, is an incredibly, incredibly telling statement. Your thoughts? Yes. I, I, I mean, again, this is, this is you know, Guaido is, is em, emblematic of this, of this uh, supposed power that the U.S. possesses to to simply say that something is so, and it is so. Uh, and the, 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 again, the way other countries went along with this absolute charade um, of 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 
you know, <laughs> appointing Juan Guaido as a as a completely Ill, completely illusory, fake president of of Venezuela, and um, you know, and then trying to stage coups and you know various various um, ver- various covert operations to to try and make that a reality. Um, you know, yes, Petro Petro is not only um, you know had had the guts to stand up in front of the world and say that the you know the emperor has no clothes on that the emperor is naked and um and of course everybody knows that and but it takes uh, it it takes the leader of colombia to come out and say that and you know when will when will any uh political figure in the and the mainstream political figure in the United States come out and say that. Um, how about Bernie Sanders? You know, that would be that would be wonderful. Um, but it hasn't happened. One other thing real quick. One thing I think it's important I'd like to get you to comment on it is, and there's a difference. The so-called third world or global south countries are pragmatic, looking out for the interest of their people, wheat and oil and things of the nature. And African countries as well. Exactly. The African countries. Meanwhile, the Western countries are just the opposite. They're living in some crazy narrative driven dream world and leaving their people to starve. Yeah. And it's it's been quite comfortable, really, for um, the people of Europe and, and to some extent for the people of the United States, although there is, uh, you know, incredible and, and growing poverty in this country, um, you know, of course, that is never reflected on, you know, in the TV coverage or, or, or the New York Times. But, um, yes, we, we, um, we, we have... We have examples that we can follow. We can, we can see what is happening in Latin America and in other countries around mm-hmm. the world. And we can see that, you know, what we have been told since the advent of neoliberalism in the 1980s, that there is no alternative to this neoliberal capitalist order. Uh, there are alternatives, and the alternatives are are growing and spreading and um, and americans if we if we want to see you know a better future for ourselves, we should follow their example Nicholas Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back thank you folks. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a great piece in Consortium News entitled Making Kissinger Look Sane. She writes, this blood-soaked empire manager is not warning about Washington's pursuit of planetary hegemony because he's gotten saner. It's because the war machine has gotten crazier. 
What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, Caitlin writes, in an interview with The Wall Street Journal, warmonger Kissinger says the U.S. is acting in a crazy and irrational way that has brought it to the edge of war with Russia and China. Quote, Mr. Kissinger sees today's world as verging on a dangerous disequilibrium. We are at the edge of war with Russia and China on issues which we partly created without any concept of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to, Kissinger says. Your thoughts, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, it is quite the uh, sight to see Henry Kissinger, you know, being a voice of some kind of reason in international affairs. Look, and what he's saying there is, I guess, exactly the point. Where is this going? You know, what is the end game of this? And really, because as defined in the in the in the documents in the since 1992, the end game is to prevent the emergence of any competing power in any region of the world, and that's kind of impossible. You see, there was this was possible to imagine. Yeah, well, first of all, during the Cold War, that was not even imaginable because there was. You, you recognized a competing power and a big competing power, which was the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc and the Chinese Communist Party, Republic of China. And, you know, these were big competing powers. Since, since the demise of the Soviet Union, the United States gutted in its head that it could be the sole superpower everywhere in the world. And for 20 years, you know, it had a way of imagining that was true. And nobody could, could uh, you know, stand against it in any serious way in any region of the world. That has changed. And the emergence of Russia and China as major economic and military powers has changed that. And now it's clear, you know, to anybody with a sense of realism that you're not going to be able to stop the rise of a country like China. This is the quarter of the world's population. It's an enormously wealthy country. It's, it's developed itself in a way that's, you know, not reversible. And Russia similarly has, you know, gotten on its feet and is standing on its own. And they're not going to be treated as minor children in the family of the patriarch of the United of, of the world in which the United States is the patriarch. They're just not going to be. So you're going to, if that's their purpose, which it is, <laughs> they're doing something that's kind of nuts and crazy. And you have to kind of destroy the world in order to do that. You have to be willing to, to, to blow a lot of things up uh, that aren't actually going to get you that, but they'll try and stop those countries from gaining the strength that they are gaining. So that's the difficulty we're in, and it's, it's extremely, extremely dangerous. You know, Jim, when I think of the sanity, so-called, of Henry Kissinger versus the neocons, I think of al-Qaeda and ISIS. You know, al-Qaeda was like, yeah, we want to blow up the apostates and all that stuff. But you guys are taking it a little too far, you know, and that's kind of the way he's al-Qaeda and, you know, the neocons are ISIS in this particular metaphor. But let me throw this out at you, Jim. The biggest impediment to the U.S. pursuing this 
is dissident voices in America. I think what we're seeing with the social media, with the political issues, that the big thing that the neocons are seeing is, oh, no, there are people in America who truly believe in things like the Constitution and, you know, want Americans' concern to be dealt with. And they're finding that in America, they've got to fight and struggle to tamp down dissenting voices. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. There are two. There are two assumptions that have been at play for 25, 30 years since the demise of the Soviet Union. One was the weakness of any other country. That's what I was talking about before. That was true for 20 years. You know what I mean? It was true the United States could assume its strength in in relationship, but that's not true anymore. The other presumption, which is very important, is the presumption that you can get away with portraying. The other, you know, we're the good guys and the other bad guys, whoever the villain of the day is. And you can get away with portraying that as much as you want. And that has been undermined by social media. That's been undermined by the, the flood of information that's available and research that's available for people to do so they can understand the history of the situation. You know, whether it's uh, the history of America's relations with China or, the, or Russia or Soviet Union or Eastern Europe or NATO or, you know, Israel and Palestine, they understand things. They have access to information they didn't have before. So it undermines the ability of the United States to maintain this pose of we're the good guys, we're doing what's right, they're the villains, etc. That gets undermined by knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the other main target of the establishment now is uh, the freedom of expression and speech on the media. And they want to control these sources of information that they that grew up out of their control and they're trying to bring them back under their control and doing as much as they can to do that so that is i think that's a very very important point that you know uh the the, the ability of the united states to present itself as kind of the leader of the free world with all the kind of moral uh value that gives it etc is something which is undermined by the facts of the case historically and those things now are available to many many more people I'm glad you used the word historically, because the other thing that I was going to add to what you said was when you look at Iran, when you look at China and when you look at Russia, there's history that all of these countries understand that the United States doesn't understand. I mean, when you start talking about whether it's Iran or Iraq, when you talk about that region, you know, the wheel was invented there. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot to be said for history, for the understanding of history, not only from its historic perspective, but also then being able to take those lessons learned and project them forward. And the United States does not seem to be able to understand that. Yeah, there's history, there's culture, there's traditions. Exactly. And not of all that I like. You know, I mean, this is all about the... Wait a minute. And there's the failure of empire. Yeah. Which they, which they all have gone through a number of times. That's right. I mean, you know, look at China is... The biggest country in the world. I mean, it's the biggest population country in the world, and you know, a huge country geographically, and full of, uh, enormous resources. And it was the victim of colonization, of absolute nasty white supremacist colonization for centuries. So you know, they know that they've been better that. You know, the, the, the people in the global south and in the uh, post-colonial countries have 
not forgotten all of the things that Americans have never known about their their history. Exactly. Their history being both history of those countries and the history of the United States and the West in relation to that. And they have never known that. The Americans have never known that. So these countries, it's still fresh in their memories, and they're not going to put up with it again. You know, what you've had with these situations is, I've been thinking a little bit of an analogy between what's going on with what the United States is doing with Palestine and what they're doing with China and Russia. It's like, okay, you know, we're for a two-state solution. Let's keep talking about it while we arm and make and fund and make it impossible. Okay. While we do that, we'll just keep talking about it. So they want to go to China and say, let's keep talking about Taiwan. Let's keep talking about it while we arm and fund and make it impossible, make it, create a de facto situation, which is an ind- of an independent Taiwan, which is what the American, huge sectors of the American political class want to do. And the Chinese know that. And they're not going to sit back. They're not the Palestinians. They're armed. They're a powerful state. They don't have the powerlessness of the Palestinians. Similarly with the Russians and Ukraine. Oh, let's talk about Ukraine. Let's have a mixed agreement one and a two. Let's have another one now. We'll talk about it for a while. We don't have to do anything. We, you know, we're not doing anything except arming and funding and creating a situation where it's going to be, uh, you know, a military threat to you. So these countries now are not the Palestinians. Unfortunately, the Palestinians aren't as strong, and they, they had to put up with this. But Russia and China are not going to sit back and say, no, you're not going to play this peace process game with us for another 20, 30 years. We have to settle some things, and we're not going to let you continue pushing this situation in Taiwan where you're creating de facto an independent state and in doing a lot of things de jure in terms of political and diplomatic uh, provocations to recognize it as an independent state. And they know what's going on. They know what these lawmakers in the United States want to do. They want to keep Taiwan and to preserve it and and extend it as an independent political entity. So they're not willing to do that. They have too much strength. These are not weak nations anymore. And the United States doesn't seem to want to get that or care about it, which is crazy because that means war. You know, Jim, one of the most enlightening events that happened in the last several months for me and probably for a lot of other people was when uh, former Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko came out and admitted that the Minsk Accords were a ruse. He basically he came. No, basically he came out and said, well, we just did that to keep Russia busy for a while so we could get prepared for war for them. It's the old saying of diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you can find a rock since they did that clearly now everyone knows the game and who would make a deal with them expecting anything other than the deal is just to hold us off until they can find something to hit us over the head with jim yeah that's exactly right they went too far in in, in ukraine and the russians kept saying you got we got to stop this we're going to stop we got to do something didn't believe they acted now with taiwan they're pushing again and they're pushing too far and the chinese are saying what no 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 this does not this dog doesn't hunt, and we won't let it hunt. We'll get the rocks out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, th- again, th- these are no longer weak powers, and they're going to stand up for what they consider their national interests and their existential interests and their national sovereignty, et cetera. So this is the, the, the path that the Americans have put themselves on. They're pushing it one step over the line too much, and they keep thinking they can get away with this. 
because nobody will challenge their escalation dominance, but they don't have that anymore. So, you know, they, they have created a situation where Ukraine is under a military attack, and they are creating a situation where Taiwan is much more likely to come under military attack sooner than it ever would have if, you know, Nancy Pelosi didn't want to dig away to China or you know, who Markey just went there and a bunch of politicians. You know, these people are saying to the Chinese, we're not paying attention to you. <laughs> and the Chinese said, well, I've got to make you pay attention at some point in a, in a very drastic way. And the other thing is that when you look at Russia's military strategy and China's military strategy, they're both defensive, not offensive. So they have invested in protecting themselves, not in projecting their power in other places. So when the United States has to go into Ukraine, the United States can't withstand that response from Russia. When the United States decides it wants to go and deal with China as it relates to Taiwan, the United States can't deal with that power projection because they're in China's backyard. And China's not going to lose a fight in their own backyard. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. German energy provider faces huge losses. Bailed out Uniper blames shrinking gas flows from Russia for its disastrous financial performance. My question is, why blame Russia for this? How about looking at the man in the mirror? As former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder said, the solution is simple. Turn up Nord Stream 2. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author, journalist, and activist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about the oppression of Palestinians, and his latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. So German electric utility Uniper suffered a 12.3 billion euro or 12 and a half billion dollar net loss in the first half of 2020 due to a sharp decline in natural gas supplies from Russia, according to the company's earnings statements released on Tuesday. And Uniper has for months been playing a crucial role in stabilizing Germany's gas supply at the cost of billions in losses resulting from the sharp drop in gas deliveries from Russia, according to its CEO, Robert Fantina. Again, look at the man in the mirror. Gerhard Schroeder was pretty clear. Turn up Nord Stream 2. Your thoughts, Robert Fantina. There are many things that can be done. We have to remember that uh, the United States and many other nations sanctioned Russia to damage the Russian economy. But it's very short-sighted because they didn't see the damage it would do for the world economy. So, yes, uh, the... The invasion of Ukraine by Russia was a terrible thing. The Kunlun war is a terrible thing. Of course, we can also talk about why Russia felt uh, it needed to 
invade Ukraine, but that's another issue. But the the fact that there are uh, these gas shortages, yes, Nord Stream is certainly a, a major part of it. Turn it on. But also the the idea that these sanctions were going to only damage Russia and no one else was just at best naive and at worst extremely stupid. You know, the other thing I think that's interesting in looking at, and we're seeing countries, you know, these so-called third world, developing world countries, and now we're seeing the leaders of those countries who are looking out and concerned with, you know, food and electricity and things of that nature and taking care of their constituents. And we look at the Western leaders, and it's exactly the opposite. They could care less. They're dealing with some kind of a narrative-driven crusade, and it's just an interesting dynamic here. Your thoughts on that, Robert? But it's true. The, uh, we look at the different the different motivations for uh, the actions of different governments. Uh, the Western governments want to punish Russia for its, uh, its invasion of Ukraine, and therefore they'll, they'll sanction it. Uh, other countries, as you mentioned, are more concerned about their people. What is happening to the people? What do they need? What are their needs? How are they being met? But this is not something that the United States and its allies really care about. Uh, as I mentioned before, power and profits are their uh, their priorities and things like uh, human rights, international law aren't nearly as important to them. And what about just this narrative that even though the reality tells us that the solutions to Germany's problems and the solution to Europe's problems as it relates to access to natural gas and to a great degree curing one of the causes of their high inflation would be turn up Nord Stream 2, get the gas flowing, and don't follow the United States down this disparate, desperate rabbit hole. Right. And European countries are always willing to follow the United States down any rat hole it chooses to take them down, such as uh, violating the JCPOA. And so this one that we're talking about, Nord Stream would uh, ease all of or almost all of Germany's gas uh, gas shortages, but in response to Russia recognizing uh, certain certain uh, parts of different countries, and in response to the invasion of Ukraine, it turned it off. Germany uh, canceled it. So there's no expression "cutting off your nose to your face." So they're they're hurting their own people in order to hurt the Russian government, but the Russian government doesn't seem to be a, very greatly impacted by this at this point. So what has it accomplished? You know, the other thing about this is there's short-term, there's long-term. Long-term in looking at this dynamic in Europe, I would have to suspect that there will be a serious, shall we say, counter-revolution, that in, at some point, possibly the upcoming winter, the people of the EU are going to be furious. And I would suspect at some point there will be new governments that will be not so happy about going along with the U.S. and dragging themselves into poverty that other than that, the people in the EU are going to just tear the EU to shreds. I can't imagine maintaining a civil society of people who are hungry and cold at the same time. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's, that's very true. The uh the people in in European countries are recognizing that their leaders are just uh, following the U.S. blindly and causing them, the residents of these countries, all sorts of problems. And they aren't concerned when, as you mentioned, when people are hungry, when they're cold, 
They're not concerned about international politics. They're not concerned about their country's, the United States' geopolitical goals. They're concerned about eating and being warm. And so they are not going to support their governments who are depriving them of those things, who are going to make the uh, gas prices extremely high if, if gas is available. Uh, food prices will, will go up, and it's going to cause terrific hardships for many people throughout Europe, and they are not going to support their governments, and they will call for uh, votes of no confidence. One of the things that is incredibly interesting to me, and as I look at this as a political scientist, not as an American or any other citizen of the world, and to your point that you made a little earlier, Robert, about the United States initial plan, the United States got checkmated here, and the United States did not anticipate that Russia had already planned its counter moves to American action. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think back to towards the end of the Trump administration, as the campaign was going on, the United States was already talking about Nord Stream 2 and not turning up Nord Stream 2. They were already talking about Russia using gas as a political weapon, even before Biden got into office. Once Biden got into office, you've got Olaf Scholz and Joe Biden standing in the Rose Garden and Joe and they're talking about Nord Stream 2 and Biden saying, oh, that's not going to get turned up. Don't worry about that. And then you've got the United States saying our sanctions are going to crush the Russian economy. The ruble is going to fall in free fall. Didn't happen. Why? Because Russia had already anticipated that move, had raised interest rates in its banks so people would keep their rubles in Russian banks, not bail on the Russian banking system. Russia planned its relationship with China. Once Xi and Putin shook hands and Russia knew it had a valid partner and China knew they had a valid partner, game over. So the United States got checkmated here. And unfortunately, Europe's paying the price. Yes, the U.S. was definitely outplayed, outmaneuvered uh, by Russia. This just indicates the uh, naivete, perhaps, of mm -hmm. the U.S. government, not just the current Biden administration. We see this repeatedly, that U.S. government officials feel that whatever they do, everyone wants to follow along, and if they don't, they'll be bombed. Well, uh, Russia is too big and powerful to bomb. China's too big and powerful to bomb. But the U.S philosophy that these countries just do what we tell them to do continues. And then when countries don't, such as, as the examples you've mentioned with Russia and China, then the U.S. doesn't know what to do. These, these uh, sanctions were supposed, to, were supposed to cripple the Russian economy. Well, they're not. They're simply damaging the economies of the various European countries. Uh, and the United States is going to feel it, too, certainly feeling in gas prices now. So what has this accomplished? What have these sanctions against Russia accomplished uh, for the United States, as far as the United States and European, Europe's goals for them, I'd say nothing. The other thing that has happened as a result of this particular incident and the sanctions and everything is that a lot of other countries are looking at it, particularly in the Middle East, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, all of this business about big countries attacking smaller countries, civilians, the Israelis are bombing a civilian area in Gaza, and where are the sanctions and where is all the kind of stuff? They're looking at things like that, saying the dynamics in Ukraine also shows the hypocrisy of American foreign policy. Robert. Absolutely. Uh, America and uh, Europe. The crimes that are being committed in uh, Ukraine that we hear about on the news 
children being killed, hostages being bombed, uh, residential areas being bombed and invaded. These are happening on a regular basis in the Gaza Strip. And yet Israel isn't sanctioned. Israel isn't internationally condemned as it certainly should be. So this is, uh, it, it's partly racism. It's because the people in Palestine are uh, mainly Muslim and Arab, and the U.S. government doesn't see them as important or as worthy as white Christians. And so that's part of the reason. Another part of the reason is uh, the economic benefits of trade with Israel that the United States and other countries don't want to give up. So, again, as I mentioned before, it's not, uh, it's not human rights and international law that are the priorities for these nations. It's power and profit. The European Union is seething over Turkish trade with Russia. This is from the Financial Times. Ankara rushed into the vacuum created by U.S.-EU embargoes against Moscow, and Brussels is angry. The value and volume of Turkey's exports to Russia has risen dramatically from 2021 levels as Turkish companies rushed to service the market abandoned by U.S. and EU corporations. You know, another element of hypocrisy here, because if capitalism, according to the United States, is the rule of the day, uh, of course other countries are going to jump in and seize the void in the mar- or the vacuum in the market. Robert. Of, of course, Turkey saw an opportunity to greatly enhance its, its economy because of missteps that the United States made. Why shouldn't it? Uh, now, we're not talking specifically about Russia's war against Ukraine. That's another another issue. But uh, Russia saw that there were uh, there was money to be made. It wanted to make this money. The markets were abandoned by the U.S. and most Europe, uh, EU corporations. So supply and demand, Turkey was willing to to fill that bill and is doing so. And the other thing I think is this, Turkey is looking at the future and they're saying, you know what, within a year or two or a couple of years, this whole thing is going to fade. And it looks like Russia is still going to be economically strong and powerful because they have commodities. I mean, to me, it's just simple, practical thinking about the future of their economic ties. Do they want to be tied to a the Titanic or to a ship that seems to be, you know, sailing along, maintaining course and speed? One minute. Yeah, exactly. Because after after this is all over and the United States eventually lifts its sanctions, why would Russia go back to trading with the U.S. when it's successfully trading with Turkey? Why make that change? There's no reason for it to do so, and it's not going to. So again, the United States government once again shoots itself in the foot uh, and accomplishes nothing uh, for, for anybody at all. So uh, it, it looks to be the uh, big bad leader of the world, but it simply isn't anymore, and people know it's not. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Always my pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We'll be right back. 